Practical Prepping Podcast. We're helping everyday people become prepared for whatever emergencies come our way. Where gear is good, but knowledge is better, because the more you know, the less you have to carry. We're your hosts, Mark and Krista Lawley. Well, hello again, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. So, let's talk firearms. This is part one of a two-part series we're doing on firearms. Understanding firearms, their history, and their importance to being prepared. We're going to release the second episode tomorrow rather than waiting for another day. And we realize that not all citizens of every country or even every city are allowed to own firearms or that your right to own or carry a firearm is severely limited. Believe me, we feel for you. Thankfully, we live in a country and a state where, at least for now, we're allowed to exercise our God-given right as protected by the Second Amendment of our Constitution. There are actually many reasons to own a firearm. Hunting, collecting them, personal defense, and even prepping for SHTF. We have a variety of firearms in different calibers, from the twenty two long rifle up to the powerful thirty out 6 We have plinking guns that are fun to shoot. Pew, pew! We have hunting guns to put food on the table. We have defensive EDC guns, and we have guns that would be useful in an SHTF. All of them owned legally, carried, and used legally. There's an old quote that says, God created man, Samuel Colt made them equal. That means that a 90-pound petite female has a chance if she is being accosted by a 240-pound burly thug. You know, even the elderly can use firearms to protect themselves. I mean, we often hear stories of little ladies that are grandmothers and great-grandmothers that are living alone in their home, and they have fended off and defended themselves against an intruder, someone who's breaking in, someone who's attempting to do them harm or has maybe already done them some harm and is continuing to be a threat. These elderly little ladies and elderly gentlemen can use a firearm Mm -hmm. to defend themselves. You can also defend yourself against multiple attackers. So the question may come up, what firearm should I buy? That's kind of a complicated answer. All we can tell you is it depends. It depends on your local laws. What are you allowed to have and carry? Or what is the purpose for the firearm that you're considering? Do you need it for home defense, for everyday carry? Do you need it for hunting, for target shooting? What is the purpose of the firearm you're considering? Hey, listen, I just want to tell you about a couple of books that you need to add to your collection and give as gifts. I highly encourage that you go to Amazon and look up this title, Making Contact During Emergencies. This is information that may save your life or the life of someone you care about. If injured, lost, or found in a disaster or another type of emergency, this book was written by Mark and Krista Lolly. I'm Krista and Mark is my husband. Book number two that we wrote that we're especially proud of and has gotten a lot of buzz is entitled Practical Prepping for Everyday People. This is a common sense guide on preparing for life's emergencies. And when we say practical prepping, we mean the type of emergencies you're going to find yourself in day in and day out. Car emergencies, dead batteries, flat tires, storm damage, the roof has gotten blown off, you find that you have no power, no electricity, no devices are working. These kinds of things are happening to somebody somewhere every single day. And we were astonished when we did a little research to find that a vast majority of people found themselves woefully unprepared for 
one or more of these types of emergencies, and particularly after this COVID year that we've experienced, I think a whole lot more of us are paying closer attention to things like grocery store supply chains, the ability to be able to buy gas, the ability to be able to move freely about, or what's going to happen if we do have to stay home for three weeks solid. Practical Prepping for Everyday People by Mark and Crystal Lolly, also making contact during emergencies. Go to Amazon, look these up, add these to your collection. We sure appreciate it. Let's look at a short history of firearms and their usage, and that'll help us to better understand a few things. Let's go all the way back to the flintlock muzzle loader. Now, this particular weapon, you poured the powder down the barrel, you put a lead ball in the barrel, you tamped it all down with a ramrod, you poured some powder in the flash pan, and the hammer held the flint when you pull the trigger, the flint strikes the plate, and that ignites the powder that burns through the hole and ignites the powder that pushes the projectile out. Now, this was not a rapid-fire gun. It had a rate of fire of about one to two rounds per minute, maybe even three rounds for the very fastest at reloading. These muzzle loaders, as they were known, would provide food for the table. They were often used for hunting the local game and so on. And it did provide protection from four-legged predators, maybe the big cats and maybe the big bears, and also two-legged predators, which would be the burly thugs that were wanting to break in. Right, and the flintlock pistol, which was the same mechanism, provided for personal defense. Now, this was the weapon of the American Revolution. It was used on both sides by the Americans and by the British. And if you look at some movies and old reenactments of that, you will see these particular weapons being used. Fast forward from that, the next advance was percussion cap weapons. Now, it was still a muzzle loader, but it worked a little bit better in wet conditions. It used a percussion cap over a nipple So there was no powder pan in which you had to pour that powder. You still put it down the barrel. You still put the lead ball down the barrel. You still tamped it down. But you put a percussion cap over that nipple that the hammer, when it drops, strikes that particular primer and through a little hole ignites the powder inside the rifle. Now the rifled barrel improved the accuracy of this weapon greatly. Yes, actually, we saw a movie the other night where they were, in fact, discussing the new innovation of rifling the interior of the barrel, making it into a spiral groove, because this would now allow the projectile to fire out at a more rapid rate and an extremely accurate rate. The accuracy really improved with that rifling, and this became the main type of weapon fire during the American Civil War in the 1860s. From there, it proceeded to cartridge cases. Now, they put together rimfire and centerfire cartridges. And basically what this is, is a pre-assembled set of components. The projectile, the propellant, and an ignition device, whether it's rimfire or centerfire. Now, this was a lot faster than single-shot reloading as far as pouring the powder and stuff. You just opened the breech, put the cartridge in there, closed the breech, and you were able to fire. The Sharps rifle is a very good example of that. 
these are the weapons that were used in the cavalry in the West. In fact, if you look at some very credible Western-style movies, you'll find that the Sharps rifle and those types of rifles are the ones that are being used, and you can watch how they load and shoot. Later, lever-action repeaters were introduced and used in the mid to late 1800s. Both of these were the weapons of the Indian Wars, the Cowboys, the Outlaws. You often see those depicted in Western-style movies. Mm -hmm. From there, we progress to the bolt-action rifle, and it has a capacity of four or five rounds that are contained within the rifle. You You pull the bolt back, and you load those down through the top on most of them. At that time, you did. Today, there are some magazine-fed, but at that particular time, the bolt action made for much faster shooting. You fired the round, you raised the lever on the bolt, you slid it back, that ejected the empty cartridge, you slid it forward, that picked up a cartridge, put it into the chamber, and then you pull that lever down. So a skilled marksman was able to fire a round every couple of seconds at the very most. And this was the main style of weapon used in the World War One days, 1914 through 1918, this type of bolt-action rifle. From there, we went to the semi-automatic rifle. Now, this is a rifle that the action self-loads the next round, and it fires each time you pull the trigger. When you charge the chamber, you pull the charging handle back, load a round into it, and the M1 Garand held, I believe, eight rounds. You pull the trigger, the gas operation or the recoil calls that bolt to come back, eject the round. As it was going forward, it picked up another round and automatically loaded that round, and it was ready to fire again. So it would fire almost as fast as you could pull the trigger. And this became the battle rifle of the World War II era when America was involved in it from 1941 until 1945. You'd find that that M1 Garand became a standard throughout the world. These were very heavy type of uh, firearms. They were quite rugged, very dependable. They could fire in all sorts of weather and temperature conditions and became the standard of that time. And it fired the 30-06 round, which is a formidable round. And George Patton, general at that time, said that the M1 Garand was the greatest battle rifle ever created on the face of the earth. From there, we went to select fire weapons. Now, select fire simply means, and and the action is very much the same as that semi-automatic M1 Garand, but in the select fire weapons, you can select semi-automatic where it fires one time each time you pull the trigger, or you could select full auto, which continues to fire as long as you hold the trigger down and it has ammo in it. Most of these were in pistol calibers as well as the 5.56 M4, which became the standard battle rifle of the American soldier. It's also available in the 7.63 in the AK platform. And in World War II, the 30-06 BAR, Browning Automatic Rifle, was very popular. In fact, my uncle manned a BAR in World War II. From the select fire weapons, we went to machine guns, and you have several types of those. The crew-operated machine guns, and you'll often see these where it's a crew of three, and there's a loader, there's a shooter, and there's somebody to carry all the ammo back and forth, and 
you would see machine gun nest set up with these and the 30 caliber crew operated was either water cooled or air cooled during world war ii you also see these as vehicle mounted machine guns we've seen those in all kinds of movies and you've also maybe seen them in museums where it's that machine gun mounted up on the top of the jeep or the tank or whatever they also had handheld submachine guns, and these were in the pistol calibers. The Americans had the 45 Thompson sub as a great example of that. The Germans had the 9mm grease gun, and all of these fired a pistol caliber round, and it would fire as long as you held that pistol down. Now, the M16 and later the M4 were the main infantry rifle in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan in its fully auto version. So it's a great rifle and still used today. Well, you know, with the exception of lightweight handheld fully automatic weapons, we still use the same actions and feeding mechanisms used by the military in past conflicts as the action of our current day hunting rifles. In fact, my father's 42-year-old Remington 742 30-06 deer rifle is the exact same basic rifle as the AR-15. It's semi-automatic, and it's fed from a detachable magazine. The biggest difference is the appearance. His hunting rifle is beautifully checkered, walnut stock and foregrip, and it has a deep blued finish on the metal. But the AR-15 is black plastic. It has a pistol grip, has flat black metal, and it's kind of ugly as rifles go. But a lot of folks think it's oh so scary. They call that the ugly gun. And, yeah. and some of them can be. But, you know, actually, Dad's rifle is more powerful than the AR-15. His 742 is chambered in 30 6 where the AR is chambered for the much less powerful 223 or 5.56 NATO round. In tomorrow's episode, we'll answer the questions about which firearms most preppers should have. The answer is still, it depends. But we'll talk about some specific firearms and make some recommendations. The choice to own or not own firearms is a personal choice. The choices you make depend on what you believe may happen after a cataclysmic event. We expect to survive and continue to live while protecting our families and putting food on the table. We expect the need for firearms in a catastrophic SHTF event will be much more likely to be providing food and personal defense than it will be in fighting the unwashed hordes. But we are being prepared in case the alien zombie frogs or the fire-breathing ninja turtles do show up. We'll see you tomorrow. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast today. Hopefully you've learned something, picked up a tip, or something we said may have triggered a thought that will help you in your prepping journey. If you haven't already, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. And share it with your friends and family. And remember, stuff happens. Stay prepared.